Welcome, welcome, welcome to Peggy's Recovery Corner. Uh, we are back again on this recovery podcast. In this podcast, we talk about all things recovery or lack thereof, depending on how you roll. Today, my very, very, very special guest and good, good dear friend is Curtis Gerard. Hello, Curtis. Welcome to the welcome to the corner. Hi, hi, Pej. Thanks for having me. Nice to have you here. So. Um, you know, usually when we have guests on, we like to delve deep into their past, see where they're born, where they were raised, what their upbringing was, get into the nitty gritty, and then into the recovery portion. So, uh, where's Curtis from? Where Where were you born and raised? Southern California. Born in the valley. Moved to Ventura County. Um, pretty soon after that, Thousand Oaks, Simi Valley. A little bit of popping around in the valley, but mostly there. Mm-hmm. And um, um, and then my dad moved to Orange County and San Diego, and so I split my time between basically all three of those areas from Ventura County South. So you were living, you were down in in Orange County, you know, like growing up for a little bit because your dad had moved down that way. Yeah, by the time I was like uh, seven, eight. My dad lived in um, either Mission Viejo or Elisa Viejo. I can't remember. I was mm-hmm. pretty young. Mm-hmm. Um, and then by the time I was like 10, he was in Oceanside. So um, like every other weekend, that's where I was at. And nice. then I, my day-to-day was in Ventura County. By eight, I was in Simi. And then I was in Simi okay. pretty much. And then growing up in Simi, Simi Valley in, in the Ventura area, uh, what was that like growing up there? Uh, did you have brothers, sisters? Yeah. I have... Uh, Somebody's somebody saying to me, sound quality is bad. For who, me or you? For me. I don't know, but... Uh, <laughs> give us a second. All right, so so growing up in, in Ventura, uh, how, how was life? What was it like? Uh, my mom uh, had four of us by the time she was 24. So there was mm-hmm. four kids. And um, she married my stepdad when I was eight. So and we moved to see me. And uh, before then, it was like, um, my mom did a lot of things. It was like a, a, all four of us little kids, um, with a single mom. And um, it was a little chaotic, I would say, but my mom like, did like a bunch of you know like i always like wore gap and like vans and like and uh i think i got my first skateboard at like six and and um and it was it was fun i mean we were super close she like took us to the beach we did a ton of things all the time like i always remember going being outside and and um and uh and always having like these little siblings it's my sister is 18 months older than me or younger than me. And then, mm-hmm. um, and then there's like a two year gap between my brother and then a year gap between the other brother. So, you know, I think it was like five. And we, by the time I was five, there was four of us or four and a half, right. five. Uh, but we grew, I, like we moved to see me when I was eight. I remember I moved schools like middle of fourth grade and I was like the new kid. And, mm-hmm. uh, um, which was cool, but Simi was rad because like Simi was relatively safe and, and like, there was like a bunch of kids in the neighborhood 
and um, I had my own room, you know, uh, for like the probably the first time. I think I like it was cool. I got to like have a room on the other side of the house, you know. Mm-hmm. So like all the all the rooms, my parents and the other kids were like on one side, and then I was like I like had my own little space. Um, and that neighborhood but we, like, that you lived in, the neighborhood that you lived in was it just like like a typical Southern California like oh yeah. Neighborhood? The kids were just skating. Some were surfers. Were you hanging out yeah. with that? That uh, those types? Yeah, it was like mostly skateboarding because uh, Simi's like I don't know if you know it's like a street skate skate mecca. Like we just produce skateboarders apparently. And, yes, um, actually, one of my dear friends from back in like the '90s that was a pro skater was from Ventura, and he had moved down to Costa Mesa, uh, but he was he was badass. Yeah. And so we had like a skate lab in, in the town, which had like a, we had a skate park and like, there was, you know, a bunch of stuff filmed there. And, and, uh, um, but we skated around, we had like backed up against the wash. So like in my neighborhood was, had a wash, we would be skating in the wash, like, and make our own makeshift half pipe. And, um, I remember I got in trouble because we would like go and catch tadpoles in the wash water. <laughs> And then bring them home, and uh, and my mom would be like, "You're like gonna catch something, you know? Like you can't go just diving in the wash water, you know?" Mm-hmm. And um, I had no semblance, but we skated everywhere. It was like a Seven Eleven down the street, and we like skated back. It was fine, you know. It was cool, and uh, there was like always like a mess of kids just pooling together on skate boards and then on the weekends or whatever one of the parents would take us to the beach and then uh we go have our way at the waves okay and and growing up in that area were you easily influenced was there a certain time a certain age where some of the kids around you may have been experimenting with drugs or alcohol like when was the first time you that you were introduced to anything anything that was mind-altering um, I remember I was in sixth grade, a neighbor kid had, uh, we had, I drank for the first time that I can like recall. And, um, uh, I was, so I was 12 and I remember going to, um, yeah, thank you. Um, uh, I remember going to like sixth grade and like telling the kids at school and them all like looking at me shocked. Like it wasn't like prevalent that other people were drinking or using drugs or anything like that. But I had like gotten drunk and I told everyone how cool it was. Right. But like reality of the situation is, is like, I, uh, I like got drunk on wine coolers, you know, like it's not that tough guy, you know, and I'm bragging to the sixth graders about how cool it is to get drunk. And, uh, and what I'm probably had like what four, you know, I don't know. Right. Right. I was like, I was like 68 pounds, you know, mm. so I was a little guy and uh, just trying to fit in. Yeah. I was just trying to fit in. There was like always like a couple older kids or, or something like that. And, and uh, yeah, and then I went and bragged about it. And then from that point on, like basically any time I could get my hands on it, we were trying. And that was you know? booze. It wasn't was it weed or anything like that too? No, I started smoking weed at like 14, 13, okay. 14, and uh like eighth grade. And that's when it like started to kind of people were starting to smoke weed or you kind of knew, but it was still pretty hush hush. Mm-hmm. And um um and so anyways, yeah, about 14 years old I started smoking weed and then I was just a daily weed smoker, 
every okay, day. Okay, during during that time, how were you achieving in school? Were you good? Were you did were you a good student in high school or junior mm-hmm. high? Never really. Like I, I, I uh, was always one of those kids that like if they applied themselves, the teachers would say like if he would if he would apply himself, like I would just con- consistently not turn in homework or you know or do it. And uh, but I could I could grasp the material. You know. Did you did and you then, read much growing up? Were you a reader? Were you well read? Not really. Not really. I mean. I didn't have any problems doing like I didn't have any difficulties doing it, but I was like an ADHD kid. It was hard to keep me, att- you know, it's hard to keep my attention. And, right. um, and kind like, of a, day, a daydreamer in school. Oh, totally. I was just like, and I was a class clown too. Like I was always looking for like, where's when, when is someone going to not talk so I could do something outlandish, you know? Right. And, uh, and I would get in trouble for it all the time. And it would never stop me. I'm just the next opportunity ready, you know? And it, it would only land. <laughs> yeah, it would only land like 50% of the time or 20% of the time, you know, even with everybody. But, right. Um, but yeah. So then um, in your junior high, high school days, you start smoking weed. You've already been drinking for a minute. Um, then what? Um, well, yeah, I was, uh, cause I was like still like trying to, I still did the bare minimum cause I was like playing sports. Um, I tried my way at like f- freshman football and, um, I hadn't hit a growth spurt. And so that was like pretty small kid on the field and a lot of competition. Um, and then sophomore year, I started wrestling, which was like my jam, you know, I really liked it. So I was like keeping it together, but I, we, my wrestling team, we did really, really good. And so, and I had no understanding. We were like a super good team. And so even if like you were on JV, you were probably, you were wrestling kids that were way better than most varsity teams. And so we would win everything. And so we just partied all the time. You know, like every match we would win. It was like no contest. We'd just destroy. And uh, and like, I wasn't even on varsity, but I just got to party with all the, all the team, all the seniors, you know? And when you say partying, like what were you guys just like, alcoholically drinking yeah we were just were drinking you doing, and were you smoking doing drugs and um we were drinking and smoking weed i started doing other drugs i got um i snuck out when i was 14 and um it was like three in the morning to go smoke weed mm-hmm. and we got pulled over by the police and so they called my parents so that's how they discovered i was like getting in trouble mm-hmm. um and from like that point on, I was like drug tested for weed the rest of my senior year, until t- I was a senior in high school. So they were and, testing. Um, yeah. So I started getting drug tested. And by, by your parents or by the. Yeah. By, the- by my parents. Okay. I caught like I caught an easy charge. I caught like a curfew ticket because I didn't have weed on. I ditched my sack, you know, so they couldn't like pin it on me. A curfew really charge? Hard. Like a, a teenager? Yeah, I got a curfew. <laughs> curfew ticket. By your parents? No, by the police. Well, I've never They're heard actually, of a curfew curfew charge. I didn't know. Oh, it was oh, a oh thing. it means like kids at a certain age are not allowed to be out past curfew. Okay, that, three in the morning is not an appropriate time for yeah, that. Okay. Oh, yeah, you were out yeah. late for being. My friend got a weed charge because he didn't ditch his sack, but I got. They had to put the. They tried to stick something on me because I was clearly to try, high. to try to give you like to send a message to you. Yeah. Let you know and to like, turn it around. 
you yeah. know, I remember I was so high that like my parents were scolding me for what felt like eight hours, you know, and mm-hmm. I was just like, I don't care about literally anything like this. I'm going to do this exact same thing as soon as I possibly can. Right. Cool. Take the, I'll take the licks. I'm not going to tell them nothing. You know, like I don't rat on the homies telling them nothing. If anything, it's a lie. And uh, that's it. And um, and so by the anyways, I, I said that I started getting tested for weed. And so I started had to venture out to get high. Right. There was there's like, what, 12 panel cups. That's like 12 other panels. I got to I got to that okay. are just free right now, you know. And so I started taking like Xanax and um and doing other things what did i do i did a couple other drugs how are you getting xanax kids are bringing them to school man at this time you were what 17 18 years old yeah 16 16 years old kids were bringing them to school did you ever ask anyone like where are you getting these or did did anyone we had like a weed dealer and then they could get other things and that branched out and, you know, we found other dealers and then, um, but I was like, I was perpetually trying to like, we partied every weekend we drank. Right. And then, um, I was, I was always in fear of getting tested for weed. So I don't know what depths you'll go to like pass a drug test, but I've tried literally every way. Oh, I'll go to many depths. I mean, I'll, 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 uh, transported a whizinator underneath my leg and over to the back of my shoulder through a jacket if I have to, however that may be. From oh. from sophomore year till senior year, I carried either mine, clean, or fake pee every single day for like three years. For sure. Even and, knowing, uh, and also take in mind that some people check the temperature of your urine, so you've got to have a microwave nearby to warm up the temperature a little bit on the i had a specifically thin eyedropper bottle that my hands could warm it i could like literally hold it enough and it would to where it would warm it up from your body heat yeah Yeah. but it calculated like an eyedropper it got into trouble when i got i took a bunch of xanax and then i fell asleep after school and no one could wake me up for like eight hours and they decided that they were like, we're taking you to the hospital. You're on drugs. And I was obviously denying everything. And um, and so then I, I was like, I'm going to get drug tested. I better get this pee ready, you know. But I was pretty barred out. And I dropped it. And uh, and then I like went to go pick it up. And I kicked it right to like my mom's feet. And uh, and she's like, what is this? And I was like, it's eye drops. It's eye drops, you know. And she's like, put in your eye. And I was like. Oh no, I almost went to that. I you almost, almost put did. urine in your eyes. I almost put pee in my eye to stay to to keep it keep the story. And for those that don't know what the term barred out means, it means to be on Xanax bars. And uh a lot of kids would be they they they'd be taking these Xanax bars, however they may get them. Now when you would take them in, in excess, was it like uh two and three at one time, or were yeah. you taking one and then one a few more minutes later, a few more hours later. Or, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, it's spread it out, but like, cause once you start, once I start, like I'll put literally anything in my body, you know? And did you, did you think like this could be dangerous or did you know the dangers of uh, excessive Xanax usage? Not at all. Not at all. You just did it. Not at all. Just you did, did it because it. you were 
because others were doing it. I mean, at the start, but by that time, like I had to get high. Right. You know? Like you, you developed a dependency. Yeah. I mean, I had to get high. I mean, it wasn't like, like I could stop and like, I wouldn't detox, but I was getting like, I had to be on something every day. I couldn't face life. I don't did know. Did you what. ever stop? Like, did you ever stop for a period of time? Yeah. I mean, I'd have to like, I remember there's pictures of me like going to San Francisco with my family and I just look so miserable. I'm like 16 years old. Cause for like a week I can't get high, you know? And, um, did your parents know? I mean, they, they suspected, they didn't, they knew a piece of it, you know, but I, I, I mean, it was so muddied up with delusional and, and BS. I just didn't, I didn't tell them the truth about anything, you know? Mm-hmm. So what was true and what was false, who knows, you know? Um, but by like 17, 18 years old, senior years where like, it just really, it really turned. Like I started working at Vans. I was like working at the mall and I smoked weed every day. It was like pretty chill, you know? Yeah. And um, uh, and then like we started selling weed and, um, and then I'd get some money. Some older friends were taking us to raves and older, you know, older siblings of other other people who were taking us all different places. And, uh, but we were still like, you know, there was still, there was a little bit of fear to like, you know, bigger drugs and stuff like that, I guess, or whatever that might have been. And, um, but like senior year, I was, I turned 18 early. Um, I got my med license in senior year. I had to go to adult school. Um, the kids that were failing classes and um and uh and i had a car and a job and i worked two jobs actually in high school and um and so i had like cash in my pocket and it was just it was the party was on you know like the end of high school was happening and and um you know i went to adult school i remember the first day someone offered me cocaine and I was like, I'm going to either survive this barely, this this high school experience, or I'm not. I was like, this is going to be, this is going to take over my life. First day. And so much so that like two months into adult school, my friends who smoked weed and did drugs with me had a full-on intervention with me. What happened? They basically were like, you know, they don't, they didn't know the realities of addiction, right? So... Like, um, some drugs were cool and some weren't and they, but they focused on the behavior. Like they were like, you're a complete dick. This is on cocaine. Yeah. And did you do a lot of cocaine? They made a deal with me because I, I basically said I, I wasn't, I wasn't a cokehead, you know? And, uh, and they were like, I bet you can't not use for two weeks. How old were you at this time? 17, 18. Okay. And like, so, so did you attempt to quit for those two weeks? Um, I think I quit on the last day of the two weeks and then I, and then I shoved it in their face that like I could stop after two weeks or something like that. And would you go do Oh yeah. Many times, <laughs> but, but they were like, you never, you never stop. You've done it every day for two months, you know? So in high school. Okay. So this is like 17, 18 years old. 
you've already had an alcohol career. You've done some weed smoking, Zanny bars. Now you've graduated to cocaine. Was there any other drugs yeah. in the mix? Were you a, a psychedelic yeah. type? Were you doing I had taken, heroin? Um, I had taken, I broke my leg in senior year of high school skateboarding. Uh-huh. And so I'd started on Percocets and um, uh, Vicodin. And, and that like, I, then I just started rummaging. I, I, then I figured out that like people have drugs in their medicine cabinets. Who knew, you know, I made that connection. And then I, I took every, everything that said it make you drowsy in someone's med- medicine cabinet, I would take, mm-hmm. you know, or don't mix with alcohol. And then I would do that, you know? So opiates were in the mix. Yeah. So they started senior year of high school to the leg injury. I was like crutching around. And uh, I remember I had to have, I had this girlfriend who was like super good. She got got good grades and she was rad. She was the kindest human ever. And um, I was like broken leg crutching around and I get so high on, on Vicodin and Percocet that um she'd have to like come and pick me up i get to like get released from class five minutes early because it took me longer to get to the place i remember i mm-hmm. ate i would eat it like every other day in some class i would just fall over in the middle of class because i'd just be completely intoxicated i'd take way too much of my own, my own medication and and then i think i turned 18 and then i got to like manage my own medical stuff you know, mm-hmm. I could call the doctor on my own and I could sign myself out of school. And I'd be like, oh, you know, um, I'm polite. So people believe me. And uh, so, you know, I, you know, I, I lost my pill bottle or whatever. And so I'd get like extra refills and started, started working the doctors by then. And I had my, I had a med license too. And uh, so I'd go to like, I'd, I positioned my senior year to where I would like, I didn't have a first period and I would barely maybe make it to second period. I would go to third and fourth period and I would leave for lunch. And then I would come back after school with like a, like a ounce of weed, sell the weed and smoke weed and do other drugs until the afternoon and, you know, until the evening. Did you graduate? Graduate? Only because my mom said you're not going to graduate, so I did it out of spite. So you were able to to finish school even loaded. Yeah, I um, um, the only class that was like a challenge for me was English, and it's because I didn't do anything. And my teacher called me out in the middle of class and said, "Why do you even show up? You have a twenty six percent." And it was oh like a God. month before graduation. <laughs> She's like, "Why do you come in and class clown around here?" And uh, like, you're not going to pass. It's not like you even have to show up. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so after class, I went and I, I asked her, is that true? And, uh, and she was like, yeah. And uh, I was like, is there any way I can try? And she's like, I don't know if it'll, the math will work out to where you can even graduate, but I'll, I'll help you if you try. And, um, and she did. I like wrote, I wrote a paper high on Adderall, I think. Um, that had started. I'd started getting prescribed ADHD medication too. And so I started abusing that. Was it Ritalin? Um, was it Vyvanse? Was it uh, Adderall? I think, I think I'd had Adderall for a little bit and then like someone wised up and then they put me on like a time release one, you know, and so I would like, 
so you can you couldn't abuse it is that why yeah it was concerta i think and i would still concerta. i would still try and abuse it like i'd still like spend an hour crushing it up it was hard to crush up i remember and try and snort it and uh or take too many take a few of them and um but we could get it by that time by the senior i'd wised up like i could get things i could have i had dealers and stuff you know gotcha. we, could, we started doing ecstasy we started raving like me and my friends started like going to fresh parties and like some of the insomniac stuff and like it was yeah. starting to get more commercialized like if you were 18 you could go you were like 18 and over and so you, uh, had, you had a stimulant phase too you were doing ecstasy and mollies and all that okay all of it and um so okay, so you're 29 years old, correct? I'm 31. You're, oh, you're 31 now. Mm -hmm. You've got double digit sobriety. You got sober at 19. Was that yeah. right? Yeah. What? What? I mean, you finished school. I mean, you graduated high school and all that. How long after high school did it take for you to actually decide to get sober? Was there a crisis yeah. moment, or did something happen to where you needed to get help? And did you go to treatment or where? So middle of senior year, I got in trouble for doing drugs. My parents okay. said, you can't do that here. What they said was, you can't do this here. And what I heard was, you're kicked out. So I left. Okay. Right? I moved in with my friend. I Then I got free reign to do whatever I want while I was in high school. Okay. And uh, I was 18. I graduated. All my friends did the thing where they go off to college when they graduate. And then right. I became the kid who partied and drank with the high school kids. Okay. Right. Really cool, tough guy. Super awesome, you know, thing. Um, what was I left to do? I had no skill other than to sell drugs. So that's what I started doing. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, someone connected me with... Um, someone who basically took me to the doctor, paid for my script. I got a script of oxys. And I would say those were the oxy eighties. Those were the Roxies at the time. Oh, the Roxies. That's they had just turned into Roxies. Yeah. And, okay. um, and, and then I just, I went, you know, I was going to use some, you know? And so we split my script. Mm -hmm. I had half, they had half, right. The dealer put me on. And then you could go back every two weeks and do that and get 90, 90 Roxy's. Okay. You know? And like within weeks, I was fully addicted to Oxycontin and opioids. And um, at the time I was still nursing this broken leg injury that I'd never rehabbed, you know? I don't know if you know about opioids and like yeah. how it messes with your brain. Like I had real pain created by my brain because right. I needed to put op opioids in me, you know? And so like, yeah. I was like hobbling around with my like leg, you know, <laughs> like I'm off just for like a year and a half. So right. my ankle hurts all the time. And, um, and so I just upped and upped and up, they would give us Xanax. Um, and we had a few doctors on, on that and we would just mm -hmm. doctor shop and so for the next year and a half, I went from uh, oxys to like couch hopping to like nowhere to live to like renting rooms. <clears throat> My best friend overdosed. Um, I called 911. He was saved. Um, and this is before we knew like you could call and not get in trouble. Mm -hmm. right? um, there was just 
pill bottles everywhere. I remember the EMTs like looking around this room and there's just like empty pill bottles everywhere, you know? And, um, and then I like just couch surfed and then I, I basically had moved into my car, you know, at the time I would still drink and like, and do stuff. I remember I would like fall asleep with a handle of Captain Morgan at, at like my, in between my. That was my drink. Thing. Yeah. That's what was mine too. I was the only thing. Captain I, Coke. Yeah. I didn't need Coke. I just drank the cocaine maybe. Yeah. Sure. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, by the time I was 19, what happened was, is I was homeless. My friend started overdosing, going to jail, going to treatment. And, um, uh, a girl broke up with me and I just, my heart couldn't take it. It was cold. My car had been impounded mm-hmm. and, um, I had talked, uh, I had talked, I basically mouthed off to, uh, my landlord and gotten kicked out of there mm-hmm. and, uh, and I had nowhere to go. And so I thought, you know, well, um, I'd been doing heroin, mixing heroin, oxys doing, I, I stepped it up. And, um, excuse me, you know, when you were doing heroin, were you shooting it or just, uh, smoking, no, smoking. It? Okay. And the best idea I could come up with is that I either need to kill myself because my problems are so bad. Mm-hmm. My family doesn't want me around ever. You know, I can't even, I lived at like a drug den and got kicked out of like a drug house. Even you your know? drug den. Yeah. My landlord was high as hell. My roommates were everyone. Yeah. Right. And so you're um, fucked off. You were basically fucked off. I was completely fucked off. I and you were using an excess to basically just be checked out and remain checked out, yeah. correct? Yeah. So then what happened? I mean, why did you seek help? Um, I didn't. I went to my mom's house because I needed somewhere mm-hmm. to live. And I had she'd let me in one other time, but I got arrested in front of the house like six days later. Um so she was like, nope, not happening. Call your grandparents. And so I called my grandparents and, uh, and they were like, oh yeah, we'll help you. And I, me and my grandma have the same birthday, so I can work grandma, you know, and, uh, immediately everything was fine. My life was solved. I was going to move to Vegas with grandma and grandpa. She was going to make me pan- chocolate chip pancakes and, uh, and you know, maybe I'll have the flu. I'll kick heroin. It'll be great. And, um, they started looking at rehabs and had an intervention on me. Like a family intervention. Yeah. yeah. Un, 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 like experienced, coached by a treatment center. And I went to an in-network treatment program in, uh, in Ventura, Santa Clarita. Santa Clarita over by Magic Mountain. And that was the first time you'd ever been to treatment? Yep. Was that the last time you ever went to treatment? Yeah, because they yeah. do things like when you're about to leave, they say, what are you going to do next? And then they suggest sober living in front of grandma. What were you? Okay. So wait, <laughs> the place that you went to, when you say in network, was it indigent? No, it was just, it was just, I had like a HMO policy back okay. then. It wasn't like it was before Obamacare and all that. Yeah, stuff, it, was just, you know? it was just a regular treatment. It wasn't bougie or nothing like that. No, there was okay. like so, 10 of us in there. So you're yeah. saying when you first entered, <clears throat> they said to you, what are you going to do when you're going to leave here? And they basically let grandma know that you're going to sober we, living. We, we recommend sober living after. Yeah. How long were you in treatment? 26 days. Anything good come out of it? 
the cook said, hey, you know, this this life you're living, you pretty much know how that works, but you could, you don't know what recovery has to offer you. Maybe you should give it a shot for a year. The cook told you this. The cook told me this. It's all I remember. I remember, well, I remember. There Did was you get any therapy in there? Was there, was there like oh, groups? Yeah, I got, a, I got all of it, but I don't, I'm a treatment professional now. I remember no modality. I remember none of it. I remember kicking hard on the couch and this guy with a mustache walked up to me and was like, what's wrong with you? And I was like, I'm sick, man. And he's like, oh, you dope sick? And I was like, yeah, dope sick. Can you get the F out of my face, you know? And he right. and he looked at me and he's like, remember that. You never have to feel that way again. And I was just like, I was 19. I was just like, flipped him the bird, get out of my face, you know? They did take it, me to an NA meeting and I remember them, someone telling a joke and I laughed mega hard. And it was super inappropriate. And um, it was about the steps and like, and I just, I laughed so hard. I remember it was probably the first time I had laughed in like five years. You know? It's interesting. I've had the same conversation with people and I try not to say it like that guy I was saying to you, but like, you know, when somebody's totally dope sick yeah. or they're kicking really hard, how can, I wish I could, I say, I wish I could climb into your head and maneuver, you know, certain thought processes mm -hmm. or certain decision makers mm -hmm. as to, I, you know, if, no pain, no gain. I got to bear this pain and then I never have to do this again. But, you know, for the most part, when somebody's kicking opiates, the brain starts getting a little bit better in that the, the, the addiction, the disease, whatever you want to call it, sleeps with one eye open and is just waiting for the next to get a little bit better, to gather a little, all the information we need so that we can then go on and do our merry little thing. And next thing you know, mm -hmm. the person gets loaded again. That's, that's what's scary. But you're 19 years old. Uh, mm -hmm. You were in this place for 26 days. Um, mm -hmm. Did you go to sober living after? I went right to a sober living. There was 18 guys. I was like 15 years younger than all of them, minimum. And know? why did you, What at what point did you make a decision that I'm here to stay sober for good? Was it in the oh. sober living? Was it in treatment? When was it? It was like six months in. Okay, I, so you I got relapsed. Possible reservation. Oh, you relapsed. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I went home and I went to like a thousand meetings a day. <laughs> and I talked about how great sobriety was to everyone that would listen. I parroted people that I thought sounded good in AA, you know, and um, I was going to actually every fellowship that I could at the time. Right. And um, I was the only seen. I was the only teenager in, pro, in AA in that area in Simi Valley at the time. And uh, the two times that you relapsed, you didn't require going to detox. Did you detox no, on your own? It's just a one day thing. What was it? Was it opiates, alcohol? What was it? I, ne I never did opiates again. Okay. So it was, what, did so you it was drink? like weed and alcohol. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then what made you get serious? Why? Why after six months did you get serious? Um, well, the two relapses, I realized that, like, oh, I didn't, I couldn't just like, mentally change i couldn't change like the friends like i was going to get loaded regardless like there wasn't i didn't have the i don't have control right like the powerlessness right i was like oh i'm gonna get high regardless of my own consent at some point 
And uh, and so I got a I got a sponsor and I did like steps and I did for all the wrong reasons, you know, sponsor, hot girlfriend, had like seven or eight cars, owned his own bit, owned his own business. Mm -hmm. He like, you know, took shit from nobody. And I was like, that's my guy. He's going to teach me some stuff. You know, he was cool tattoos. Actually had a big mustache, too. And uh, he did. Yeah. And uh, and then like. I'm thinking he's going to teach me some things about life, you know? And I'm, he just read the book with me, man. Made me highlight things that I didn't see, you know? And uh, and he walked hand in hand with me through, like, recovery. Well, in a, in a sense, that is teaching you some things about life. He did, but not the things I thought, right? My ego and my, yeah. like, selfishness were like, I want... How do I get a hot girlfriend? How do I get this? You know, like how do I do, you know? Ego, ego, ego. It's interesting. Um, I, I, I was at my sober living this morning having a conversation with this youngster that was 20 years old about ego yeah. and distinguishing the ego from the soul. And sometimes I, I talk about this stuff until I'm dry in the mouth. And a lot of people yeah. will say, Pesh always talks about the ego and Pesh always talks about the ego. And, and, and right after I got off, like done talking with him in a group setting, I got a phone call from a girl that was in treatment who wanted to leave early. And like, I found myself in the garage within seconds talking to her, <laughs> having the same motherfucking conversation with her. Right. Yeah. Ego. So many people are so fucking blind to their ego and they don't realize like it is your, it's, it's your greatest enemy. Your ego is not your amigo. Right. And so oh. I, I love that at a very young age, you had somebody that was putting a mirror in front of you and showing you the ropes. Mm -hmm. So and you took this thing. Check the ego at like 11 years sober. It only gets more sneaky. That's right. You Absolutely. Know? I did it at 10 years. There was shit that was happening that I was yeah. giving a lot of power to my ego, my disease, my illness, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Uh, okay. So around that time you got sober, you started taking your sobriety seriously. Yeah. Uh, you went through the process of the steps and all that, obviously at, at a very, in the very first year, correct? Yeah. And okay. then Radley, like young people started coming into meetings there. And like every old timer would just push every guy my way. And so I just got the opportunity to just like, I was constantly in the book with guys. Being a was, service. Oh Taking my God. It was amazing. You know, I love what a service they did for me that I had no clue. It was like work, you know, and like right. none of them would stay sober. And I'd just be like, Oh my goodness gracious. And then like a year later, I realized my life had like been blossomed and beautiful. I'd stayed sober this whole time. You know, you said it so perfectly right now, Curtis. you said that you, you know, some people think when we're taking someone through the book or we're trying to uh, do a, like mentor them in recovery that we're helping them. No, they're helping us. That's all there is to 100%. it. Plain and simple. We're not doing, we're not being of service to them. They're being of service to us. We're being in service of God. Higher power, whatever you want to call it, right? So good. So now you're helping these people in in your youth, in your recovery. Mm -hmm. You're still younger um, to me always. But yeah. uh, but you took this thing by the horns. Now, um, did you get into a relationship? Yeah. I mean, I was in a relationship. I've been in uh, – I was in one, like, right when I got sober. Um, I got into one. You know, I started feeling a little better. Dope sick wore off and it's time to get a girlfriend. And mm -hmm. um, it was a lot of fuel for my step work, you know. And um, 
And then I had been in a couple, you know, um, by like two years sober, I was, I was in relationships with like people that were sober and, and, um, and it was, and it was, it was, I would still had only so much understanding of myself and I'm still a young person, you know, like still 22, 23. And that time I started working in treatment and doing that. And, and, uh, and I ran around and, uh, and I, but there were some significant ones, right? Like two years, two year relationship there, two years relationship. But the biggest one, um, I mean, I learned a lot. I've, I've realized I, I like was really kind to people and, um, but I had like no semblance of like what I wanted or like, I didn't work towards like the goal I wanted for a relationship, you know, like I wanted a partner and a person, but I just thought you just be nice to them. You know, you just be nice to them and like, don't, you know, don't have too high expectations. And then like one day, like after a period of time, like you guys get married and then there's like a house and a picket fence, you know, like I didn't understand there was like work involved. And like you talk about ego, like that's like the biggest thing I've, I've, I've come to understand in like relationships is that like that blocks me from that person more than anything. And I, I choose to spend the most time with that person, you know? And so like, like who should benefit most from my recovery? This is a my quote from my friend. He asked me one time, he said, who should benefit most from your recovery? The people you spend the most time with, you know, like, and, um, and so that's like even more of like a place I have to work those steps. You know, I have to like work that process of recovery and live the spiritual life more so than everything when no one's looking behind closed doors with the person I'm with, you know? Very well said. Very, very well said. So a few things. I'm not exactly sure when I first met you, but I do know that when I did meet you, I think we started to vibe right away. Yeah. I didn't know. I, I knew that I had lived in L.A., you had lived in L.A., and then I think both of us somehow ended up down in Orange County. Yeah. At the time, you were in a relationship with a woman who was your wife. Mm -hmm. Who I met uh, in recovery like five years before. Mm-hmm running around young people's events. She was in and, recovery uh, too, obviously. Yeah. So she, uh, she had two more years than me. We had met, um, there we started dating when you, when I met you, I'd moved to orange County. We'd been together two years and, uh, we had moved to orange County because she was, she had just gotten a terminal diagnosis, a cancer diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And so we moved to orange County to be, um closer to her family to have support so like if we 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 could focus on her treatment mm -hmm. and during that time i had just been diagnosed with cancer too what kind of cancer just, did, she, did she have yeah i think you had just been finished your treatment oh, i was just done with my you with just my chemo. finished yeah six months of deep chemo yeah and um she had non-small cell lung cancer which is um like a mutation a genetic mutation with like um there's like 300 different mutations. She had like, you know, down the list of more rare, but um, they had started. So she had a particular mutation that was not as common. So, you know, what stood out to me during that time was the fact that you guys had moved down to Orange County, I think because she needed to be closer to family, as you'd mentioned, mm -hmm. correct? And you were in love with her. You were in a marriage with her, right? And you, 
you came along with her to be with her, to assist her, to be there for her. Right. Yeah. Actually, and, I, we had moved to Orange County and it took me three weeks to convince her to marry me. And so we went and got courthouse married three weeks after I moved to Orange County. Convince her to marry you. Okay. Interesting. She was stubborn. She had an idea mm -hmm. about what like life would look like and like a plan, you know, like all that stuff that like a little girl dreams of. Mm -hmm. And I had like tried to like build that. Right. And for her to get married and not have like all those things uh, was against that ideal. And um, so I had to convince her. <laughs> and Okay. So when you, when you guys got married, did you have any idea? So uh, any, have any idea that her life was on the line? Yeah. I mean, she had um, a, like, it, I mean, it was a terminal diagnosis. It was, you know, it was stage four non-small cell lung cancer. It had metastasized to her brain. It was a softball size in her lung, in her liver, in her adrenal glands. And, um, you know, 1% of people diagnosed like that live five years. Hmm. So through so the process, was she it going was, through radiation and chemo? Yeah, but I, I was there to like, I just keep the hope, you know, and like cheerlead her on and like, you know, walk, walk it with her. And she started chemo. She went through five lines of treatment, uh, spanning over, a, a, including a, you know, um, um, what's it called when it's not an approved medication clinical trial. There we go. And, um, span two years and, uh, um, I think four or five lines of treatment until she ultimately, she passed away two years later. Did y'all know like as it got closer to it, you were prepared for this? I mean, treatment worked initially, um, but the cancer was so aggressive that it was just so hard to, it was just cancer management. And then it just wasn't anymore, you know? Um, and we knew about probably four to five months before she passed. It was like pretty apparent. We just was whether we would believe it or not, you know? Um, but about three months, I think before she passed away, we, she had done palliative care and then I, I we had made the decision. I'd made the decision we should move to hospice. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so she stopped all treatment and we had like the first month of that was wonderful. Like I stayed home every day. I stopped working. We had, she'd stopped treat six months, I think before she'd stopped treatment. We had our, we had like our big giant wedding, 170 people. We went on a honeymoon. Um, we had trips planned. Um, you know, you're making me get emotional. I mean, it's an emotional thing, man. I mean, it's, it's real. And um, yeah, when we moved to hospice, it was, it was like just day in, day out. Like, what can we make food and like have fun and like go on walks down? We lived in San Clemente and went down to the beach and, and, uh, and her health started to deteriorate and her mind started to deteriorate. And I was there with her until she passed, man. And I'll tell you, it was the most powerful experience I've ever been a part of, you know? And um, her and I talked, she was a therapist. So she pushed me while her mind was really there. Like she pushed me 
to go to emotional depths and talk about things. We talked about her death. We talked about what it looks like after, you know, she made me make pretty serious commitments. And um, I love my wife, but she was a force, man. She was not, you know, she was not like, she was strong. I, I say, she was so strong, man. She sponsored girls to like, she was like to the last six months of her life, like over the phone, you know, she like, she, she, she worked two fellowships too, man. And, and, um, but she was a force, man. She told you, she saw right through you <clears throat> and she saw the best version of you. And she held you to that standard and she would tell you. And sometimes it was a <clears throat> jarring experience to be, to know you were not, you were not on par, you know? And, um, and it was the most kind and loving thing, you know? And um, today I probably receive a more gentle thing, but she was direct. And, um, and so she pushed me, man. And she, she, you know, I grew immensely emotionally in those two years, you know, and I had to, she deserved it. You know, she deserved that. And, um, and uh, then all of a sudden my purpose for the, my day in and day out, I mean, I took care of her. And, um, you know, and sometimes during, you know, hospital stays and, you know, in cancer treatment, sometimes it's like you get kind of near death experiences. And, you know, like I was pretty jarred by that experience. So like I'd wake up at four in the morning and like she'd be awake and I'd have to take care of her, or, like help her through every daily activity. And, and then she passed and I was like what do I do every day? You know, my sleeping schedule is off. Like I'm alone. All of a sudden my room went from being like seemingly crowded to like a, a whole entire like country. It was giant, you know, just me and our dog. And, um, at the time we lived with her parents who are both in program. Oh, really? Yeah. One AA, one in Alamon. Um, both work steps. The amount of amends that took place in that, incredible. Spiritual mm -hmm. practice on the daily. You know, like we'd sit in like meetings and recovery groups and talk about it. But like, try living with your in-laws and a cancer diagnosis and four people in a two-bedroom condo, you know, and three dogs. And uh, the the amount of spiritual practice that needed to happen on all ends, huge. And, and they were beautiful about it. Everyone was. I just don't know how. I, I don't know how lucky I got. You know, like, I do know how lucky I got. But I don't know how I got, you know, what, what did I do to deserve like that day in and day in example of walking through it, it imperfect and, and um, beautifully. You know, I want, you, I want to show you some of the comments right now. You never know what powerlessness feels like until times like these. Elena from Elena, Elena, oh, from Iris, you have a heart of gold, Curtis. Um, Cindy says she had a fairy tale wedding. You're a good man. She did. She said, I'm so sorry for your loss. Heart Brian says, Great conversation. Buzz says, Ego's not your amigo. <laughs> <laughs> Lucy says, Curtis Gerard, hello, friend. Hi, my friend. So there's a couple of things I wanted to, to talk about now. Yeah. Um, and this is, you know, 
such good conversation. I, I, I watched your, I watched you carry yourself through that process with such strength and, and both vulnerability, but also, um, you were driven to continue to help others. Yeah. I've watched you work in the treatment setting in admissions. You are a powerhouse when it comes to um, helping people get the help that they need when it comes to treatment. Kind of ironic for a person that was so uh, not really down for treatment when you went to treatment that one and only time for 26 days. Hated it. Uh, but you're a powerhouse. Like you're, you're, you are known in the community as being a stand-up individual that does it the right way for the right reasons and has good intention in making sure that people that are in need of help for treatment get the proper treatment that they need. Um, you and I sat together amongst uh, somebody that was a, a great mentor for both of us. Mm -hmm. uh, we both went to an intervention training. Since then, you have gone on to uh, do other trainings in interventions for other people. You are now currently an interventionist that uh, helps a lot of people. I believe that you do some life coaching and, and uh, some, you know, you, you work on the front lines with people personally too. Am I yeah. wrong? About that? Yeah, I'll do like mentorship. And mentorship. then I'll also work with, I work with a lot of the families, mm -hmm. you know? So what I found after thousands and thousands of admissions calls, which I did the math on a couple, a little bit ago and, and, at like a, a conservative number is like six to 7,000 admissions calls that I've taken. I believe in years. There's, and, uh, there's a major I, reality to that. And what I found was that like so many of them, those, those parents need like someone to walk them through and hold their hand and teach them and like help them like take a look in a mirror and help them find the support that they need. And so I'll, I work with the families too. So it's a collection of things. Um, but thank you for all those kind words. I well, love you. I love you too. You, you already know. Curtis, I want you to know something. I have a lot of friends. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of, lot of, lot of friends. I have conversations with lots of them. There's a lot of acquaintances, a lot of really close friends, and then there's deep friendships. Whenever I talk to you, whenever I get a text from you, whenever I get you on the phone, whenever you get me on the phone, which sometimes we are both hard to find mm -hmm. one another, you always say you love me. And whenever you tell me you love me, I feel the love. I mean, like really soul to soul, heart to heart. It's a real loving friendship. And and you're just a fucking good dude, like all around. Like you, you are known to be a good man and I mean, yeah. just from everything you just said today you're very humble you know and you, you don't need to walk around and say you're humble you it, it's just it's your essence it's the way that you express yourself the way that you are you're just a good man and so i i believe without even being in the room i want you to know like we sat together in our intervention training classes mm -hmm. right and you were laser focused you were <laughs> taking notes you were learning from a great, like one of the best. We both know that, right? Yeah. And, and then you went on to learn from other greats, right? The Ed Storties, the Earl yeah. Hightowers, you know, these people that have been doing interventions for years and years. I have no doubt in my mind that when you're working with families or when you're working on the front lines or when you're doing an intervention and trying to help somebody to get help, I would probably go for what you got to offer if you were trying to help me get the help that I needed. And, and I could be deep into my disease, but you've just got a special way with people. You know, you, you have, uh, that's why I asked you early on in your adolescence, like, were you educated? Because when I hear you talk to me, I, I'm surprised you weren't, you weren't much of a reader. 
because you're well versed, you 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 speak very well, you get your message across. Mm-hmm. It's all love, and I believe the reason that you do such a good job at this is because your heart is in it. It's all heart, that, like, it's all that's love first. It's, it's it, all it's love. First. You know what I mean? Tosh used to tell me, "You tell everyone you love them." It's just gonna. It doesn't mean as much if you just tell everybody. And I'm like, no, right. no. I, I mean, I fucking mean that about right. that. Right. If I tell you I love you, I love you. Right. I want you to know that. You know, like, and um, and I mean, I'm now. I mean, I've worked. I've spent a lot of time around a lot of master's level clinicians. I spent a lot of time around a lot of psychiatrists. I ask questions. I'm in, interested. I'm intrigued. You know, I've got to spend some of the great interventionists have spent, let me spend time with them, you know, and um, right. I was talking to one this morning who I just adore and um, and like, let me run through like my thought process and why, you know, why, like, what am I, where am I focusing here? And, and um, um, you know, like, I mean, I, like, honestly, there's, there's some power right and that has placed this all there you know and and it has like walked and i've been lucky enough to walk that road and like be able to see it clearly some days and or at least have enough good friends in my life that keep me in that direction right and um um but i pay i pay attention i read a little bit listen a little audible books you know and um and uh right now i'm like on a trauma kick and uh I'm, I'm like trying to learn more about um, about trauma and maybe probably for my own deal, right? And um, um, but uh, but uh, yeah, I paid attention and 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 I've worked, but I have a high school education, you know. I did do I did almost com- I did get into an addiction studies program before before Tosh got sick, so I was into that, and um, I just couldn't do it when she was in. Have, have that and um i love intervention that's why i do it i saw oh i was gonna say i work with the families because i i just heard so many like this i can like probably mimic the call you know the mom who's just like you talk to them every two months for like a year and the the like their loved one their son their daughter is just like getting worse and you're like okay well like you're giving them money you know like okay but you're like bailing them out of jail you know, and like, I don't, I'm not a tough love guy at all, man. But I'm thinking that like, I'm a, I'm a consequences for your actions guy. Right. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I, do I think we should lock up drug addicts? Do I think we should treat them like we treat them? Absolutely not. Do I think that, uh, you know, like we don't lock up people who don't do their diabetes medication, you know, right. like it's an illness, right? Like, but do I, do I think since that is, currently happening because of some of the behavior surrounding it can we utilize that as a motivating factor to break through the delusion shit yeah you know like let's go you know Mm. and so but like that same call right like they and they're just like boom they'll say it and then they'll like well you know i know you told me this and and like but i i did this and this and this and like that person is still locked in to that system that's mm-hmm. just keeping them in the sick, you know? Right. And, um, you know what? I couldn't take it anymore. They kept me, they keep me up at night. I can't right. do it anymore. They keep me up at night. And that is the reason why I started. I like went to that training. That's why I've gone to more. I've like learned the other modalities I've spent. Like, I'll tell you, Earl said one thing in there that just blew my mind 
right? He's like, dude, anyone could follow the, like, these processes and probably be like 80% effective, mm -hmm. right? But to be great, it takes you to take this skeleton and put your personality around it. And uh, and I've just been like trying you to create that personality your own brand. into. I've been just trying to throw that personality into like things that work, you know? And, um, but I love it. I'll do it as long as it'll have me. I'll work as hard as I can until you and I are both out of a job. I hope that that's right. That which, takes place. which will probably be a long time if we, if our hearts keep beating I mean, and our lungs keep. I could use, I used to be able to just take Xanax off the street and not, and be fine with it. It's not the case anymore, you know? Right. You can't take pills off the street and it not be pressed with fentanyl, you know? That's the way it is these days. You know? And uh, it's serious. I think in the last, what, six, seven, maybe eight months now, you have gone on also to work with a center that I happened to, at this time last year, they had some event where I actually caught COVID. I may have caught COVID oh, in their no. outdoor, outdoor part, but it was, um, they had me speak there around the fire pit. And then uh, later I come to find the owner of the place we had met probably about a, a month or two later. His name's RJ. It's Oak Forest, mm -hmm. right? And yeah. then I think he went to go work with them afterwards. And they're uh, a structured sober living environment up in Agora Hills, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Yep, 10,000 eggs. And, and now they have an outpatient. Is it the na same name? Yep, same name, outpatient, sober livings. We have three and sober I've gone, livings. And I've gone and looked at the outpatient. I've actually gone and toured it and sat with RJ and um, – I was highly impressed. I mean, really, really well put together. Um, mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about what's significant about Oak Forest? Why does it stand out so much? Yeah. We as treatment providers pretty much have like to do this a lot of the same things. You know, we got to provide certain effective modalities, right? We all do that. Um, Oak Forest, huge thing as, as it does all of those with wonderful people, right? Um, has a community and 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 puts all of its energy into that community. When I tell someone when they come in and I help them, I'm like, look, man, like I like let's say we give them some sort of break on something. Like we 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 make a lot of commitments to people. If we will not kick anyone out on the street who's like doing the deal, finances won't aren't the aren't a thing. You come in, your insurance kicks you out kicks you off because they think you're doing too good. You're working the steps. You're doing the deal. You're a part of helpful of the community. We'll never, we'll never put you out on the street. And that's RJ's thing, you know? And, um, um, but we, we spend every time that first like few weeks and the entire treatment process, we spend about thinking about how, like when we add them into that alumni community, how great of a mentor they are going to be to someone brand new. And we prep them and talk to them about that. And we, 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 for that goal. And so we have a, that bonfire meeting it was on Thursday nights, started with RJ and three other people four years ago. Last week we had 180 people, 190 people. And, uh, at we, that fire a, pit? At, at our, we bought a, we bought the treatment, like the, we bought another house that we, um, called the compound and uh it's bigger and so it houses a lot more people and so um 
Yeah, we fill up the entire backyard. We park cars. We have like a whole lot. It's on three acres. So um, it's huge. Microphone, loudspeaker, bonfire going, set up chairs. There's like 40 commitments. People in our community have it. And we basically give someone a cake from our alumni, our community, every week from one to five years. That's a big deal. That's that's what makes it. That's you a big know? deal. I, I must say this: like you, you already know, I'm all about structured, sober living environments, sober, mm-hmm. sober communities. I'm about people integrating within a community and and becoming friends with people and building brotherhoods and friendships yeah. and sisterhoods. And and um, I, I I've been to Oak Forest. I see. I know what kind of work you guys do there. Um, I endorse it. I, yeah. I if anybody was to ask me like, what's a solid program in the, the greater Los Angeles area? I'd say go to Oak Forest. I spent like before COVID, I decided I was not going to work at another treatment program. I was just going to work with families and do interventions. Mm-hmm. And um, they didn't have to convince. I saw it for my. I, they, I saw it, and I was. You do. How, do I, how do I work here? How do I, what, do I, what can I bring here? What will yeah. you let me do here? You right. know. And um, so, thank you. I love it. I think. And, it's and great. I'll tell you this right now, Curtis. You. They're very lucky to have you. Yeah. You know, I, I believe that you're definitely uh, the glue that holds it together. Most definitely. One of the ones, you and RJ are doing remarkable work over there. And I, and I we're, really, really, I observe from a distance and I'm really a fan. Of, we're a good um, team, man. Yeah. We're a good team. And you know what? Like we'll, we'll go, we run that intervention, you know, get it. You know how many interventions you can create on a daily basis in a treatment setting with 60, we have about 55 clients across the board. Sure. Hundreds. We just run crisis intervention all day long. All day, every day. All day. We just run clinics on it and we bring our staff and we just try and teach them like this is how, this is how, how you do, do it, it. Mm-hmm. you know? And um, never a dull moment, my friend. It's never, I mean, yesterday I felt like it was just on, it was on nothing that critical. Like nothing was life threatening. It was just on, you know, I was, I was pretty, pretty pulled in a couple of different directions, but it was fun. I went home last night. I hit the pillow. I was like, I think I helped a couple of people today. Yeah. My day was, (laughs) I think I did. I think I helped a couple of people. (laughs) Either way. I just go into uh, the results or whatever. I just try and have impactful experiences and I benefit from that. You know, if I can create a real intimate, true space with you, that is more powerful than the disease. I believe even just for a, a period of time. Right. Maybe it's not it's not the sauce that runs for eight years. Right. But it might run for the rest of the day. Absolutely. You know. Very well. I, I've thoroughly enjoyed having you on today. I've felt a lot of emotions today. Happiness, some sadness. I love the way that you've worked through the grief. I'm, I'm so stoked that you didn't have to use or drink over it. I don't even think it was an idea or a thought. Um, just yeah. knowing you, you're. You, my friend, are a powerful force. You help a lot of lot of people. I'm not saying this stuff to I just I mean it. Like I just I know what you do, I know what, what you represent, who you are, and um and uh keep on being you, man. We need we need you. We need more people like you. And I, I love you dearly and thank you for coming today and be being uh vulnerable and transparent about you. 
such a good man. And I look forward to seeing you in person again. And when you say I love you, I love you too. I love you too, buddy. <laughs> a lot. Thank you so much. I love Have this. a good I day. And thank it. you to all the people that, that tuned in today. Lots of people. Cassidy uh, said you're a rock star, Curtis. Thank you for your vulnerability and sharing your story. Thank you for all you do to help others to find recovery. And Cindy said, fantastic. Thanks for sharing your story. Awesome. Awesome. Much love to you. Have a good rest of your day. And thank you all. Bye. Bye-bye.